Welcome to the latest episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. My guest today is Daniel Quint, CFO at Staffline Group PLC. Daniel has held several high-profile finance positions, including finance director at ICAEW and CFO roles, including Young's Brewery and SPE UK, a large engineering firm. He's currently CFO at Staffline, which he joined late in 2019 after a difficult period for the company, which had seen the share price drop from a high of about £13.60 to a low of 20 pence. We are recording this in March 2023, the week after the group released its latest set of financial figures. So I'm hoping Daniel will be able to give us some great insights into the turnaround. So with that, let's welcome Daniel Quint to the Forward Thinking CFO. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you and good afternoon, Stephen. I've uh, actually just found out that the the turnaround at uh, Staffline is an award-winning one. Uh, the IFT have presented an award, so I'm sure that listeners will be keen to to hear about that. But before we get there, perhaps you could walk me through your history and the sort of highlights of your career and how you got to be in that position. Sure. Yeah. So well, I uh, qualified at KPMG and had a stint of six, seven years in retail and leisure firms. So Dixon's Group, um, Whitbread was in. Uh, traveling what's now known as Premier Inn and Mothercare. And I then uh, stepped into BFD of the ICAW, the Institute Chartered Accountants, for a number of years. And that was really interesting, but decided to return to kind of, I suppose, coalface commerce, as I call it, and then went to be divisional CFO at Robert Walters Group of UK, Middle East and Africa and their Global Resource Solutions RPO division. I was there for about five, six years and then moved to Speed, the mechanical engineering company. I was UK CFO of that company, which is listed in Paris and as a six billion euro uh, uh, turnover group. And then my last two positions, I was uh, CFO at Young's and now been CFO at Staffline. Um, so I've had a variety of positions and um, building my way up to CFO, but in also very interestingly in a, in a variety of sectors and industries, retail, leisure, professional services, mechanical engineering, pubs. So yeah, it's been a really interesting journey so far. Yeah, that is interesting. And I've always thought that about the finance role and finance skills are are generally very transferable. But uh, yeah, I'll ask you a bit more about that as we go through. So let's come to Staffline now then. As I mentioned in the introduction, you joined Staffline in a very difficult period. The 2019 annual report, uh, which I have read, made some interesting reading with a number of major issues that you had to deal with. Before you kind of, we kind of go into it, could you just outline the situation as you found it and the sort of the, the, the main headline issues that uh, that you discovered when you got there? Sure, of course. So I arrived in December 19. Starfline had a really quite troubled year all the way since January of that year when it had had a whistleblower, the shares were suspended. The previous year it spent... 50, 60 million pounds on acquisitions uh, during 2018. And in 2019, the business became quite distracted by some of those governance issues, as well as a tricky year. You'll recall that was the Brexit year. So <coughs> there was a, a tricky trading period for the business and all these issues came together. And so you, I kind of probably knew 50, 60, maybe 70% of what had happened, because I think don't think you really ever know until you get into an organisation. But, um, you know, I took that opportunity because I suppose to an extent I didn't have much to lose. Those those were the issues. And I actually looked at it as a real challenge because Staffline is and was even at that time an absolutely fabulous business. It had been grown by a, a kind of a corporate entrepreneur from the early 2000s during the, the early then teens, 2000, you know, 2010s to be 
you know, a really large scale, large footprint UK expert in blue collar flexible workplace solutions, as well as it's one of his other divisions, which is a training skills and employability division. It was a great business, but I think it got ahead of itself and it didn't bring the organizational structure along with the scale of the company that it had grown to. That's what I kind of have concluded on a number of issues. So that's what I found when I, when I joined in 2019. Yeah, so it's interesting what you say there uh, about you didn't have anything to lose. I, I, was, I was wondering about that, your thought process as you considered taking that. Uh, first, I suppose it was an interim role initially, and you've been, since been made uh, sort of permanent CFO. But what was the sort of thought process you went through in terms of you know, potential personal risk to your career? Yeah, that's, it's a really good question. And, and really, it comes down to I didn't have, I mean, just repeat to that, I didn't have much to lose. I was looking for a PLC position. I had the opportunity to take this over a night, more or less. And I actually found the business really interesting. And that was before I got there. And I, I find it even more interesting now because it really is a, I use that phrase again, cold face. I mean, we're at the cold face of the UK economy and talk about blue collar and wages and all that comes along with that. So, you know, if it hadn't have worked out, which there was a distinct possibility it might not have done, there were bank waiver letters every two weeks, et cetera. If it hadn't have worked out, then it hadn't have worked out. But I suppose that's one of the equations in life, isn't it? Risk and reward. If it did work out, then it worked, it would work out well. And, and thankfully it has. And I'm, you know, CF group CFO of a, of a, you know, business, which is, you know, a core business to, to UK economy and proud to be so. Yeah, that's right. I suppose there is that. If it hadn't worked out, then. Yeah, nobody can really blame you because it was already in a very difficult situation. Yeah. <laughs> but as it turns out, lots of upside potential, which uh, you've been able to sort of capitalize on. So I'm interested in what happens when you first get into that role then. And how do you go about prioritizing all, all of the, the issues there and, and starting to make a plan for how to deal with that? Yeah, well, an additional issue to the items I listed earlier was actually culture and people. And therefore, it's something I really enjoy. And therefore, it was actually really getting to know the people very quickly. I was up there on my first day in Nottingham. I live in London, but was up there three days a week and spend a lot of time with the people and just broke down the issues in a methodical manner. Uh, you really had to make a map of the issues, whether it was financial issues. Obviously, the balance sheet was the first port of call. Governance issues. Now, there was still members of the board who within four and a half months were exited. So there was, um, I wasn't on the board for the first four and a half months. So it was I, actually, that was quite good because it gave me an opportunity to get on just with, with, with getting stuff done rather than getting involved in some of what was going on at board level. And it, yeah, it was really a matter of putting into silos the issue. So the acquisition from 2018, not integrated. Right. What do we do about that? The balance sheet issues, delegation of authority. Do people know what they need to do, what they can't do and what they need to escalate to the group, CFO, the board, etc.? And so that's very much, uh, you know, in a governance uh, perspective. Another key matter was actually really getting to grips with the financial reality of the business in two senses. One was the performance. Did I need to speak to the city, which I did and I did at the end of January? And number two, the financing, the lenders. So it was just putting these things on a piece of paper, categorizing them and be clear what are the issues and putting them into different categories and then how are you going to deal with those issues in a methodical manner. So really, really important. Yeah, okay. I can imagine that's a very challenging, but at the same time, really interesting thing to take on. So to what extent were you able to kind of galvanize the existing 
team there in finance, you know, you said that one of the first things was about uh, changing the culture and really dealing with the team, getting getting to know them and so on. But were you able to sort of transform that using those same people or did you have to bring in some interims, consultants or make wholesale changes? Yeah. So there was a mixture of, I would say, three things. The core team themselves, I was very, I said, you know, team, guys, everyone, I want to know everything. Yeah. There's no, don't worry, just tell me whatever you need to tell me. The communication culture here must be dynamic and transparent if we're going to make this work. So that was a really, really key for the core team. In order to deal with what was quite limited bandwidth for myself, there were restructuring consultants brought in. And so they supported me, they supported the board and the group finance team and where relevant, the relevant divisions. That was really important. And then I did bring a few new positions in. For example, the group didn't have a head of internal audit, didn't have an internal audit function at group level. And I, I bought, that's one example of a new role that I created and brought, you know, a really good head of internal audit in. Again, because this, there was a lot of this was governance and communication and people knowing what they should or they can do at their level, but also what they can't do and where things need to get escalated. And yes, that was a bit of a three-pronged approach to the people. You had uh, some industry experience of the recruitment sector from, you mentioned Robert Walters in your uh, introduction there. How important was that industry knowledge, given what you said already about the transferability of finance skills in sort of tackling the situation at staff? Did it kind of give you a head start or was it really essential? Not essential, but it definitely got a head start. It's a very different part of the recruitment sector. So Robert Walters and Harvey Nash, where my CEO was there for 15 years as CEO there, Harvey Nash, white collar recruiters, that was an Harvey Nash IT, myself, Robert Walters, so professional recruiters. This is a different part of the sector, but it's still the product is people. So there's a, a core compatibility there, but slightly different. I would say more outsourcing recruitment as opposed to you know interviewing recruitment uh, it's a high volume much higher volume than white collar recruitment we do have white collars one of the stars of the last two years actually we've increased our permanent white collar recruitment by nearly 200 percent, so nearly tripled it which is you know one of our strategic aims announced in november 2020 at our capital markets day which is something we have bought to the group but not to replace our temporary worker model at all that you know we're a leader in that but it's to supplement it and enhance it but yes there was definitely value in the recruitment experience that i and and my ceo have had okay good thanks for that i hope you're enjoying this episode of the forward thinking cfo numeritas created this podcast as part of our mission to improve the way finance makes decisions and i hope you find the conversations as useful and interesting as i do We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or just talk privately about a forecasting or modeling challenge. Drop me a message through the contact form on our website at numeritas.co.uk and I'll get back to you. Now, back to the show. The 2019 annual report, which I mentioned earlier, I, I read and I've made a note here. So it stated there was a material uncertainty which may cast significant doubt on the groups and the company's ability to continue as a going concern. Now, I can imagine that any CFO is not going to want to have to put that in their annual report. And you were there as part of the solution to, to this. But what was the thinking around that? How did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to be honest with the situation. And we had a sticking plaster of finance. We did a 
slight transition from what was a revolving credit facility in summer 2020 to a receivables facility, which is a more appropriate facility for a recruitment company with a high volume and quantum of invoices, so which you can uh, borrow against. But effectively, it, it only saw us through for, you know, nine to 12 months, which was less than the going concern period. So we had to put that in there. But we were open and we were honest and we consulted, of course, with our lenders, with investors, and made sure that they were all familiar with that. And actually, as importantly, our customers. I spent a lot of time with customers in spring and early summer 2020 with a number of our top 10, 20 customers, making sure that they were familiar with the balance that we now had and that that would come out, but that we had certainty through to 2021 when we would likely then do an equity raise, which is what we did. Yeah, okay, good. Really interesting to hear about that. And there was some financial restructuring going on there, wasn't there? Can you outline that for us, the sort of actions you took on that? Yeah, so we had a revolving credit facility, which had three lenders, and they had clearly had a really troubled, you know, one, two, three years to two and a half years with things they were being told, which didn't work out, et cetera, et cetera. So that was, uh, it was another key area of stakeholders I needed to get on side and win their trust, which I did. But they, you know, they'd had their time. There was too much legacy negative DNA there, uh, understandably. So I effectively, we uh, sensibly in 2021 exited them for replacement lenders, relationships that uh, with one of the lenders that was there already that I'd built up and uh, new lenders, a uh, relationship that my CEO had had there. And so there was a level of trust there and we got new lenders and, and we, we shook hands very nicely with the old lenders because we, we got them paid out. So there was no... You know, they got all their money out, which was good. And we brought new lenders in with some no legacy DNA, legacy memory, corporate memory there, which was good from their perspective and our perspective. And um, we've had an extremely successful time with them since now nearly two years, since summer 21. And now we have a full receivables facility of 90 million uh, with an accordion option of 15 million. That works fabulously, you know, a great facility. Uh, syndicate of three lenders and it just you know just works extremely well and did, were you able to take advantage of any of the um sort of covid measures and the, the sort of uh, government support for financing there as well it may have been part of the problem but i think problems really were, were existing before that weren't yeah, they? yeah the but, problems uh, existed yeah. before that in essence actually one could say that covid might have helped a little bit we were able to take advantage of the vat deferral scheme the cash flow scheme there, which actually you know supported us and says we actually benefited from COVID because we are a over greater than 60, 65% supplier into the food supply chain and food retail. And of course, all of that went online and therefore packages, deliveries and warehousing exploded. And so we benefited from that. We didn't take, we only took benefit of the COVID deferral, VAT deferral scheme. We didn't take any COVID loans or anything like that. We didn't want to muddy the waters there. We'd want to take the simple automatic deferral benefit and then head towards a, an equity raise in late spring, early summer 2021. Excellent stuff. And, and I see uh, the latest uh, financial report that's just come out in the last few days. You've been able to repay at least some of that, if not all of that, VAT deferral. So uh, that uh, looks like there's good progress there and um, a strong set of reports, a sort of strong set of accounts there. Yeah, so in terms of COVID-related, that was all paid off at the beginning of 2022. So that was the last installments of that. So totally, you know, unencumbered by COVID loans or borrowings or anything like that, which is fabulous. Good results. Yeah, we generated 12 million of operating profit from a business that 
two slash three years ago, it had a £50 million loss. And well, that was 16.5% up on 2021 when we made £10.3 million and uh, growing the business sensibly. We had net cash, very importantly, especially in this slightly fragile financial environment, economic environment. We had net cash of £5 million. We also have an interest rate cap in place that I purchased in October 2021 that protects us on the majority of our debt exposure over 1%. And so we have protection on that through for three years through to the end of two uh, towards the end of 2024. So we've done a few things to protect the business as well as it can. And I think to be in a net cash position at the end of last year is a, is a really good position to be in. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a real success story and hence the award from IFT. So, well, I mean, congratulations, but, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, really is an impressive turnaround. So let's move, well, actually back in time a little to ICAW when you were the finance director there. It is quite a unique position, I think, that, isn't it? Uh, so you're managing the finances of the organization that leads the way for 130,000 accountants worldwide. So did that feel like you were being held to a different stand to a higher standard there and uh, it's a bit like the game to gamekeeper game, gamekeepers gamekeeper in a way isn't it was there anything particular that you learned in that role that you applied in in later positions yeah it was, it was, it was really interesting right in fact there was an article at the time run about me that was they titled me accountant to the accountants and so yes, it's quite yeah. a, a novel title but it's quite strange actually because even though it's i suppose not using my phrase I used at the beginning, coalface commerce, and it doesn't, you know, it generates surpluses rather than profits, and those surpluses are reinvested for the benefits of the members, etc. It was a fascinating time for me after having worked at Dixon's, Whitbread and Mothercare, really, you know, front-end commercial retail and leisure businesses, to look at a different type of business and a different type of organisation where value was defined in a slightly different way in terms of value for members. And it's just a different way of looking at things. But I was able to bring a lot of my sharp retail leisure experience that I had in those preceding seven years to the organization. I think that's why they looked into retail, because I was at Mothercare just before that, that actually looks into retail rather than picking someone from a similar third sector environment. And it just allowed me to bring commercial perspective on things into an organization such as the ICAW. But of course, it was a really proud moment to be able to be accountant to the accountants. But it did really, actually, ironically, even though I was in list of businesses before, your allusion to the fact that, you know, did it make you look at numbers in a different way? You know, with the accountants, whether a small accountant, a big four partner, or a group CFO of a large PLC, looking at the numbers once a month when I presented them once a month in the crucible that was the amphitheater in Moorgate Place, which is the the, the head office, it, it did, you know, you were on edge a little bit more as you, as you should have been. You got 100 accountants staring at you and, and making sure your numbers are right. So it was a fascinating place to be. And, you know, a really enjoyable four years there at the Institute. Yeah. So was that a significant, did you have to kind of implement a significant uh, culture change there and, and, you know, to try to move it in a more commercial direction? Yeah, that was definitely true. And a couple of things we did, we increased, along with one of the, the commercial directors there, we increased the promotional activity that we offered members. We, we actually sold um, aspects of the ACA into universities, I suppose, in Commonwealth countries to where the ICAW brand travels extremely well, as you can imagine. But as you said, it was able to amalgamate my commercial experience with an organization that has very high values, high standards, and, and that brand recognition as the gold-plated accountancy qualification that goes with it. So it was a you know, fascinating four years. 
Yeah, okay. I've got to ask you about Young's. Uh, Young's is a brewery company that owned 270 pubs. I think it's a little less than that now, but uh, it makes proper beer. I'm uh, a big fan of Young's beer. Even before COVID-19, my impression of that sector, the pub sector, and in fact, hospitality as, as a whole, but pubs in particular, was going through a tough time. And certainly pubs around where I live have been closing. But during that time, when you were there, Young's made an acquisition of Redcomb pubs. And I'm just wondering what it was that, you know, were Young's bucking the trend there? Were, they, were you doing something different that um, meant you were able to sort of outperform what was going on in the rest of the industry? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Young's is a really special company. I think over 200 years old. Of course, it's very famous for the brewery it had, which it, it sold in the early 2000s. But what it does different and what it has done different, so I'm talking really about the pre-COVID period, but it will continue to differentiate it post-COVID, I'm sure, and maybe even more so, is that it really differentiated itself. It's a very, it's a high-end premium pub product. Gin's Gintastic, I think, was one of its spring promotional uh, headlines. It's a really high-quality drink and food offering in a lovely, lovely atmosphere. So the there's a lot of detail, a lot of detail. You pay a lot of attention to detail around the furnishings, the ambiance. So you walk into those pubs, and it is just a very, very lovely experience. And you know, it really differentiates itself in that respect, and it invests a lot of its earnings into the pubs to allow that differentiation to occur. So I believe that's what it does differently, and why people are really attracted to those pubs. Yeah. And um, was that acquisition, was that something that uh, was a kind of a no-brainer? Were you able to see that as uh, applying synergies for, and, and the sort of Young's approach, if you like, that that goal, uh, sort of magic source that they had to the Redcomb pubs? Yeah. So the Young's approach is really to ensure that it's got high quality pubs, but in high quality locations. And the Redcomb pubs, most of them, because you want to buy a batch of pubs and maybe one or two that not as premium as others, but, but most of them were in fantastic new locations. So for example, on the coast in the southwest, Devon, Cornwall, Young's is a business that's effectively predominantly, I think, totally below, you know, in the south, beneath, um, uh, south of Birmingham. And these were just a great collection of pubs in great locations and therefore bringing the Young's brands to those locations, whether that's the, the, the food brand, the drinks brand and all that comes with that was just a, a fantastic opportunity not to pass up. Oh, that's interesting, good. I'm kind of just interested a little to reflect back on your time at Young's and that being a, a stable growing business and all of that compared to Staffline, which was somewhat in crisis. Do you have to think completely differently or is it really just kind of going back to finance fundamentals and applying those? That's a good question. You do have to think differently. Comparing my time at Young's where you're looking at only really at forward-looking KPIs, you're having to do limited amounts of financial restructuring, although I actually raised £35 million for them. Just it was a refinancing, no no emergency refinancing. That was just a part of the refinancing cycle through a private placement actually with bearings in the States, 35 million quid there. So that was that was really interesting there. But it was a you know a great business. It still is a great business and a real focus on operational efficiency. I mean you just you had loads of bandwidth. And that's not to say I don't have the bandwidth for that here. But in my first six, nine, twelve months, 
and time is taken up by refinancing when you're getting a bank waiver every two weeks. So that you only have limited bandwidth and, you know, with the support of really good restructuring consultants, uh, supporting in getting under the bonnet of the operational challenges that, no, that occurred, integration of those acquisitions from 2018, but also making sure that our cost base was appropriately trimmed for the reality of the cut. Remember, within three months of me joining, literally within 12, 13 weeks, COVID hit. So I was only up in Nottingham for 12 weeks before being in my loft in North London for three, four, five, six months, whatever it was back who, you know, back then. So it was really, so it is yeah, that, that, very different. Uh, actually, that, I, of course, I hadn't uh, thought of that. It's, it seems to be fading into memory now, the, the COVID thing, but that, uh, that must have presented some whole different challenges of trying to deal with all that remotely without being able to get around a table and, or a whiteboard or whatever. Was it um, a real difficult challenge just to kind of, do those sorts of things that you might normally be able to pull some cohesion together with the team, just you know, getting them in a room and saying, let's sort out this problem. But uh, No, absolutely. I was lucky I had three months, literally exactly three months, to be able to get around the tables and meet people. Uh, but yeah, it was you know, bizarre. And actually in the summer, with our first refinancing in summer of 2020, we did the refinancing without a handshake, which is just, yeah, strange. But no different, no doubt, to lots of other strange experiences. Some, sadly, you know, were not nice for people health-wise in, in 2020, but from a commercial running a business perspective, you know, no different. But yeah, pretty challenging turning around a business and refinancing it from your loft a couple hundred miles away from the head office. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, so, well, uh, I think we're just sort of coming to, to the end. That, that was really fascinating. Thanks for uh, expanding on that and uh, telling us all about yeah, how you've uh, worked that through at Staffline. As a closing question... What do you see as the most critical things that CFOs should be focusing on now over the next few months, sort of six months, and then perhaps a longer time horizon for perhaps a more strategic view looking forward a few years? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I I think cash is king and uh, the old adage, but it really is at the moment. So watch your bad debts. Very, very important. If you've got exposures, I suppose, on Forex or interest rates, uh, interest rates in our case, you know, be really close to the market, see what's out there. I mean, we were lucky enough to make a decision in autumn 2021 before interest rates really rose, but I'll have a decision to make soon. So make sure you have got your eyes watching the markets in terms of those kind of macroeconomic fluctuations. But balance sheet is key. Make sure you can strengthen your balance sheet as much as possible and then be really close to your customers, understand what they want, relationships. Relationships we found are, are really, really important. They may not deliver results in one week, three weeks, six weeks, six months, but it may be in 12, 18, 24 months where what you deliver to your customers is better than what your competitor delivers to your customers. And therefore you're able to you know, really capitalize on that commercially and from a, a relationship trust perspective that translates into contract winning or volume increases, et cetera. And yeah, be thinking, I would say two, three years ahead, what are the trends in your sector? One area we're looking at is the uh, third party logistics, where some high street companies might be outsourcing parts of their activities, such as the logistics aspects of third party logistics companies. But yeah, think ahead. But in the near term, cash, debtors, performance, What's happened? What went wrong? Why did it go wrong? How can you improve it? But no blame culture, just an, a culture of improvement and open culture. All those things are really, really important to me and my boss, my CEO and the team and my board and, and the whole company. And that's a really, really important aspect of how we're running the company at the moment. 
Thanks for that. Sounds like good advice. So we, we come to the end now. Is there anything you'd like to add? It, uh, I suppose you're on LinkedIn. People can find out a little more about you there. But if there's anything else you want to add, then please do. Thank you for that. So I'm obviously on LinkedIn. I'm very happy for people to contact me. Emails these days aren't that complicated to work out. So daniel.quint at staffline.co.uk. I'm someone who likes to share experiences I've had with others and, and things I've learned. So I'm really happy for anyone to pick up the phone drop me an email or link in. And if they want to, you know, ask how, how did I do X, Y, and Z, really happy to share that subject's confidentiality, etc. But, you know, really happy to share that with people and to share experiences in that manner. Right. Well, you've certainly demonstrated that you're uh, happy to share today. That's been really interesting. Thank you very much, Daniel, for agreeing to come on the podcast and for telling us about your history and, and particularly about how you managed to affect the fantastic turnaround at Staffline. So uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for your time this afternoon. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye.